the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. I want to start today by reminding you of a relic of the 1990s. Not what you were expecting, maybe, but important. Does anybody remember the magic eye of the 1990s? Yeah? Those pictures where if you didn't look closely, all you could see were sort of patterns, bright colors, dots, shapes. But theoretically, if you could look into the picture, you could see something else, something entirely different, made up of the patterns and dots and colors and shapes. Does that ring a bell for anybody? I can't see them either. And it drove me nuts. My godmother had one hanging in her house, and I remember standing in front of it and just staring at it over and over again. And she would come in and she would say, Marissa, if you just focus, I promise you'll be able to see it. And I never could. So eventually, really upset about this and about what I was missing, I went to her and I think I was crying. And I said, you have to just tell me what's in the picture. Like, you have to just tell me what it is I can't see. And remember, it was the 1990s, so I'm going to ask you to be generous to my godmother. She was also young at the time. It was a Disney-themed picture where supposedly there was a big heart, and in the middle of it was the cartoon of Aladdin and Jasmine on a magic carpet. <laughs> but I was little, so I thought that was cool. And I thought I was missing something. And I would stand there and look at this thing and just even try to see the difference between you know, the pattern in the center of the picture and the pattern on the edge. And I couldn't trace even the outline of the heart. I just I couldn't see it at all. And it made me crazy. I couldn't get past the dots and the shapes and the patterns. I couldn't see what everyone else could see. In the gospel this morning, there's sort of two chunks to the passage. And the first one is where everyone gets stuck. In fact, I got stuck there most of the week. And every other commentary and theologian who wrote about it that I read this week was also stuck on the first paragraph of that gospel, the first part. And that's because it's terribly human of us to get stuck in the rules, in the categories, in the defining of people and relationships, in the idea that there's a right way and a wrong way. And this is sort of what the Sadducees are trying to do to Jesus. At this point in his life, Jesus is very popular. He has a movement. He has a crowd that follows him wherever he goes. And his popularity with them, his influence with them is growing. People are listening to him, and the way that they relate to God and the way that they relate to each other is changing. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the religious elites, the educated ones, the ones with the power and privilege, every time they meet him in public, they ask him some kind of question to trip him up. And that's what the first part of this gospel is. They are trying to trap Jesus into saying something that is either hypocritical or blasphemous, or will just make the crowd like him less. And so they resurrect this old law. See what I did there? Come on. Thank you. They resurrect this old law that was originally in Deuteronomy, so credited to Moses, who of course is the father of the faith, who is uh, beyond question. And they think, there's no way Jesus is going to question this guy. There's no way that he's going to say something about this law that isn't going to get him in trouble. Now, the law feels like a foreign 
thing to us, probably, right? So it bears some explaining, I think, and it bears some filling out of the picture. This is one of the constructs, one of about four or five constructs in the Bible of biblical marriage, none of which I would recommend, by the way. You try them, see if they work for you, but not for me. This one, as you heard in the Gospel, the woman doesn't have a choice. She goes from brother to brother to brother to brother. And the point of that is that women could only have property and make choices about their lives once they were widows, which meant they were free to go and marry someone else and give the inheritance of the family away. So if they put this law in place where she has to marry the brother, and then the next brother, and then the brother after that, then the wealth and property and power and privilege of the family stays in the family. It means that it keeps not just the family together, but it actually keeps the whole tribe together. Now what's interesting about this law is if you go read it, which of course I did, it ends very interestingly for the man. So the woman of course has no choice, but the man has the ability to say no, I'm not going to do this. But first he has to deny her, and then deny her sort of in front of their family, and then deny her in front of like the elders and basically the whole town. And when he does that, she is supposed to rip off his sandal, spit in his face, and say, this is what happens to men who don't fulfill their responsibility. Sounds like a good model of marriage, <laughs> right? You'll notice I said it doesn't work for me. But again, you try it if you like. So this is the law. This is one of the earliest constructs of biblical marriage and what it looks like. And Jesus, it would have been easy to get trapped in that, right? It was an invitation to get trapped, to deny the law, to say something he shouldn't, to disrespect Moses, to put himself out there. And the Sadducees think that they're being very, very smart. But instead, he completely shifts the conversation. Where they think they're going to talk about marriage and power and wealth and traditional relationships, he says, no. We're going to talk about life and death and whether you know God or not. This is not about categories and labels and how you think wealth should be distributed. This is about whether you know the living God or not. It's a pretty scary reversal there, actually. Because the tricky part about it is that the Sadducees don't seem to have the ability to see past those colors and dots and shapes. They can't see past the wave and the patterns. Even though they are looking at the incarnate God, the heart of God that takes on flesh and comes and lives with us, even though they are looking into the eyes of Jesus Christ who chooses to love people, who always puts relationship and people first, who tells us over and over again that he comes to set us free, even though they're looking into his eyes, they cannot see past their own customs, their own culture, their own ways of hemming in God's people and God's kingdom. And the good news and the challenge about that second part of the gospel is that Jesus essentially says, your customs, your culture, the ways that you constrain human life do not constrain God, and they will not constrain you in the resurrection. 
Jesus tells them very clearly that this God is the God of the living. And the God of the living chooses people and relationships instead of custom and constraint. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians this morning, he calls this community that he's writing to the first fruits of salvation and says that if they are sanctified by the Spirit and if they believe in the truth, that they will see the whole picture, that they will become something new, that they will know fullness of life and abundance of joy. And this, in fact, is what Paul says to every community that he writes to. This is the whole story of Paul, that if you can see Jesus, if you can look in his eyes, if you can choose to follow him in his way of love, then you will be free. You have to see the truth, who also happens to be the way and the life. You have to choose to follow it. But if you can see past the earthly pieces of life that divide us and conquer us and create difference between us, then you can have this freedom that is unique. This life that will give you a chance not just to be free and be joyful now, but forever. So the challenge of this text, if we sort of bring it into the modern day, is to figure out in your life and in your heart and in the world around us what the patterns and constraints are that keep you from seeing the bigger picture. What are the dots and shapes and colors? What are the stereotypes and biases and prejudices? What are the systems and the laws that prevent us, both as people and as a, a whole people of God, from recognizing the whole image of God in every one of our neighbors? How do we try to hem in God's love? How do we try to pass power and privilege down so that the same people have it over and over again? When instead, God calls us to this society where everybody is equal and everybody is free. So I'd ask you this week, as you take this story with you, which I hope you will, even though it's sort of a challenging text, to not get stuck like the Sadducees in the rules and the constraints. Look past that first paragraph, which is just a trap for Jesus and frankly a trap for us. And look at the second paragraph that is about life. And wonder for yourself in your own heart and in your own life about the things you need to let go of and look past that will let you see the beating heart of God that beats for you and beats for everybody else. What would the world look like if we understood that this fundamentally was our work? What would it look like if we all went out into the world and had the courage to talk about those constraints and then to look past them? What would it look like if we really believed and then treated everyone else like they were, in fact, bearing the image of a God who loves everyone? When we don't do this, it not only limits our own life, as it does for the Sadducees in the text, who surely went off disappointed that their scheme had not worked, that Jesus was still popular, and they missed out on all the goodness of this movement. And it does the same thing for us. When we focus on these constraints, when we let ourselves be hemmed in and try to hem in other people, 
then we miss out not only on the whole group, but on our own sort of inner peace. So I'd invite you this week to take seriously the challenge to look for those boundaries and to root them out. And to try in every single person you meet to, to see that image of God that is loving and kind. And to remember that it is our work and our call to build that world where everyone is, in fact, free. Amen. Please stand as we affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and